Hello, and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that is going to take us across the finish line through Act 5 of Henry 5. Woohoo, two fives. Um, so, high five. <laughs> anyway, um, here we are. We got through the Battle of Agincourt. We ended with hearing the sheer number of the French that were killed in the battle and the like, what was it? Um, uh, 29 English men who were killed at the Battle of Agincourt versus, um, let me see, what was the, uh, 10,000. So 29 to 10,000 is a, is a bit of a disparity in terms of um, casualties. So that's where we left it. And now the chorus is going to sort of transition us into a, a I, I would actually kind of argue we're almost in a different play in Act 5. So let's see what we think. Izzy, whenever you're ready, if you would like to take us through this first Act 5 chorus speech. Vouchsafe to those that have not read the story that I may prompt them. And of such as have, I humbly pray them to admit the excuse of times, of numbers, and due course of things, which cannot in their huge and proper life be here presented. Now we bear the king toward Calais. Grant him there, their scene heave him away upon your winged thoughts athwart the sea. Behold, the English beach pales in the flood, with men, wives, and boys whose shouts and claps outvoice the deep-mouthed sea, which, like a mighty whiffler for the king, seems to prepare his way. So let him land, and solemnly see him set on to London. So swift a pace hath thought that even now you may imagine him upon Blackheath, where that his lords desire him to have borne his bruised helmet and his bended sword before him through the city, he forbids it, being free from vainness and self-glorious pride, giving full trophy, signal, and ostent quite from himself to God. But now behold in the quick forge and working house of thought how London doth pour out her citizens, the mayor and all his brethren in best sort, like to the senators of the antique Rome, with plebeians swarming at their heels, go forth and fetch their conquering Caesar in. As by a lower but by loving likelihood, were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached with his sword, how many would the peaceful city quit to welcome him? Much more and much more cause did they this harry. Now in London place him. As yet the lamentation of the French invites the King of England's stay at home. The emperor's coming in behalf of France to order peace between them and omit all the occurrences, whatever chance, till Harry's back return again to France. There must we bring him, and myself have played the interim by remembering you tis past. Then brook abridgment, and your eyes advanced after your thoughts straight back again to France. Lovely, thank you. What are your sort of initial thoughts is on the on this 
this seems like a departure from the previous chorus speeches. It's very, it feels like, well, there's not much plot left. So I'm not, I'm not exactly summarizing what's to come or like preparing <laughs> you for that. I'm just going to be like, here's all the stuff we've skipped. Um, that feels more <laughs> like it as opposed to wait for what's to come. It's like, oh yeah, so mm. he went back and then he, and everyone was happy. And then we're going back. But also it seems so much like, yes, before he's been praising Harry this whole time, but this speech to me is just a little bit like, okay, we get it. We get it. <laughs> like, especially the line um, when they're like, he forbids it being free from vainness and self-glorious pride. Like there wasn't a political motive in there somewhere for him not doing mm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I'm not, I never fully trust a narrator, but right now I really don't trust this narrator. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, uh, you're like, and I see the agenda here. And it, it just, it's interesting because there's still a lot of like, obviously imagery going on here, but it just, it's, because it's not leading up to anything, it doesn't feel as like grand and like that glorious language that we're used to in mm. a way. It just, a lot of it is, it feels like we have to have like, I'm, I'm not reading the play or anything, but like, uh, it does feel like we have to have another one of these, right? Like before the end. And it doesn't feel as like, like there are so many things about act five that he could talk about or preface with. Like I could see him talking about Catherine for a second, but yeah. he doesn't. And I find that that's kind of interesting being as like, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it, but it feels like a big departure. And I, I mean, this is one of those that's often cut. Like they don't cut the before the battle one, but they cut this one. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I guess I can see where that comes from <laughs> in a way. Not mm. that it's not useful, but even the negging is like kind of just like, oh yeah, we can't really do it, you know, mm. as a, at the beginning. And there's nothing at the end like, please, please, like pardon us. It just seems kind of out of nowhere in a way, but it's interesting for sure. And it's it covers that piece of time that we don't see on stage, but it is, it's a departure, I think. Absolutely. And the, and the sort of topical, like very strange for Shakespeare, contemporary topical thing that actually places it. Um, okay. I've been watching the West Wing far too often, but like one of the, they were, I, it was just like one of the episodes where it's like the speech writers talking about speeches and, you know, Toby is all like, you can't make pop culture references because it immediately makes your speech uh, timed to a specific time period right? It doesn't become timeless. Like you can't use pop culture references in a timeless thing. And here, this is like Shakespeare making a topical sort of pop culture reference, which did not age well because the general that they're talking about, who I believe is the Earl of Essex, uh, came back from Ireland and burst in on the, on the queen sort of unannounced and was... Um, then tried to lead an uprising against her, a popular uprising against her, which utterly failed. So this particular comment about our great general, mm, he lost, you know, a lot of his uh, greatness, as it were, and prestige nearly two years after this was written, you know, so that gives us, uh, you know, again, like he 
those contemporary references don't really resonate with us and they didn't age well even within his time. So it's a, I mean, it is interesting how few sort of contemporary references there are, but then the ones that did like become very problematic. Yeah, Andrew. I was just um, curious if that's a little diss, uh, the line, uh, how many would the peaceful city quit to welcome him much more and much more cause? Mm. Uh, than Essex over in Ireland. I, oh, I that's can't a good help, point. Uh, maybe it's my modern ear, but I can't help but hear that as a little diss towards <laughs> Essex. The inauguration was huge. It was the biggest one of all time. Like, yeah, very much. That is funny. That is like a little bit of a diss. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Is I think there's like something really unfocused somehow about the speech whereas the previous chorus speeches took us on this sort of beautifully shall i say curated journey um through the environment that we didn't get to see but just painted this beautiful picture and this is more like seems like a little bit of a history lecture that is is missing the kind of the working our thoughts right that 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 we've gotten used to from the chorus um yeah is it, did anyone else have any any thoughts about this this speech um cool okay so shall we move on to five one this is like our our fun little scene that kind of puts a bow on um on our captains and pistol and all of their sort of interesting relationships <laughs> that they have. Um, so whatever you're ready. Uh, nay, that's right. But why were you your leak today? St. Davies Day is past. There is occasions and causes why and wherefore in all things. I will tell you, ask my friend, Captain Gower, the rascally, scald, beggarly, lousy, pragging knave pistol, which you and yourself and all the world know to be no better than a fellow, look you now, of no merits, he is come to me and brings me bread and salt yesterday, look you, and bid me eat my leek. It was in a place where I could not breed no contention with him, but I will be so bold as to wear it in my cap till I see him once again, and then I will tell him a little piece of my desires. Why, here he comes, swelling like a turkey cock. Is no matter for his swellings nor his turkey cocks. God bless you, ancient pistol, you scurvy lousy knave. God bless you. Ha, art thou bedlam? Dost thou thirst, base Trojan, to have me fold up Parca's fatal web? Hence, I am qualmish at the smell of leek. I beseech you, heartily scurvy lousy knave, at my desires and my requests and my petitions, to eat, look you, this leek, because, look you, you do not love it, nor your affections and your appetites and your digestions does not agree with it, I would desire you to eat it. Not for Codwaddler and all his goats. There is one goat for you. <sighs> Will you be so good, scald knave, as eat it? Base Trojan, thou shalt die. You say very true, scald knave, when God's will is. I will desire you to live in the meantime and eat your victuals. Come, there is a sauce for it. You called me yesterday mountain squire, but I will make you today a squire of low degree. I pray you fall to. If you can mock a leek, you can eat a leek. Enough, captain. You have astonished him. I say I will make him eat some part of my leek or I will peat his pate for days. Bite, I pray you. It is good for your green wound and your bloody coxcomb. Must I bite? Yes, certainly. 
and out of doubt and out of question too, and ambiguities. By this leak, I will most horribly revenge. I eat, I eat, I swear. Eat, pray you, will you have some more sauce to your leak? There's not enough leak to swear by. Quiet thy cudgel, thou dost see I eat. Much good do you, scald knave, heartily. Now pray you throw none away, the skin is good for your broken coxcomb. When you take occasions to see leeks hereafter, I pray you mock at him, that is all. Good. Aye, leeks is good. Hold you, there is a groat to heal your pate. Me, a groat? Yes, verily, and in the truth you shall take it, or I have another leek in my pocket which you shall eat. I take thy groat in earnest of revenge. If I owe you anything, I will pay you in cudgels. You shall be a woodmonger and buy nothing of me but cudgels. God be with you and keep you and heal your pate. All hell shall stir for this. Go, go, you are a counterfeit cowardly knave. Will you mock at an ancient tradition begun upon an honorable respect and worn as a memorable trophy of predeceased valor and dare not avouch in your deeds any of your words? I have seen you gleeking and galling at this gentleman twice or thrice. You thought, because he could not speak English in the native garb, he could not therefore handle an English cudgel. You find it otherwise, and henceforth let a Welsh correction teach you a good English condition. Fare you well. Doth fortune play the hussy with me now? News have I that my doll is dead, the spittle of a malady of France, and there my rendezvous is quite cut off. Old do I wax, and from my weary limbs honor is cudgeled. Well, bod I'll turn, and something lean to cut purse of quick hand. To England will I steal, and there I'll steal, and patches will I get unto these cudgeled scars, and swear I got them in the Gallia Wars. Adorable. <laughs> um, of leeks and men um, what, <laughs> what do we think of this 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 St. Davies Day leek eating tradition <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of question marks and shrug shoulders what the and... hell happened <laughs> what the hell happened is my first question <laughs> like it's another really weird tonally all over the place it's like the one in what was it act four where we're like well it's really sad all these children were murdered comedy it's like yeah. <laughs> the same thing in reverse like what mm-hmm. well and Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I, I was just going to say it feels weird because it felt like we kind of like we settled all that, you know, like we had them th- that moment in act four felt like kind of the button on it for me. And so mm. it's weird to have them back again doing something like we, we you know, we've been ta- it feels like thematically relevant. You know, we've been talking about St. Davies Day. We've had the whole week thing before, mm-hmm. but it's just sort of it feels so extraneous. It just mm. it's like it, just just in terms of like structure, you know, it just, it feels like we had the, the comedic button. Mm-hmm. Like, why? I, I just don't understand why we need a comedic button after the chorus speech. Mm, yeah, like, it, it feels, it feels like there's nothing, the only thing that's narratively being resolved here is quickly, right? Am I missing something? I mean, it doesn't, it also, it doesn't feel that comedic to me. I guess because oh. I'm on, because I'm the one getting the shit beaten out yeah. of me. <laughs> I'm like, ha ha, that's funny, guy. Like, no, it's horrible. And then he gets beaten up and then he's like, oh yeah, my wife died. 
guess that's my life now. Like, that's the scene for Pistol anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And so is it just like he's offending Fluellen again? It, like, it's just like Fluellen comes in and he's like, oh, this fucking guy. <laughs> like, I don't really get why it's so why there's so much animosity like why is he actually beating him up a really good question it it sounds like they had an encounter the day before which was saint davy's day Mm -hmm. um where pistol essentially said oh go eat your leek and like the leek that he was wearing in his in his hat was like a a sort of symbol of the welshman's service to the english king and um, so that offended Fluellen and then Fluellen's like, I'm going to make him eat my leek. You know, it's like, it's, and all the, you know, phallic connotations aside, which we, you know, didn't even uh, uh, sort of go there, but there is something, I think this is the first time we've seen Pistol. I, I'm sorry. We, this is the first time we we've seen Fluellen not liking Pistol because the yeah. last time in my mind that they had an encounter pistol was like oh he's as valiant as mark antony like he's the best he's the best and gower was like no he's not he's really not all that um so it is i i wonder if that sort of reversal of fluellen's yeah. um, attitude is the reason we have this but it's also like a strange way to conclude all three of these characters yeah I wonder if it's kind of a reminder of like, if it's sort of like a resetting of mm. like, we, we had this war where like we had all this camaraderie and like the aunt, like this Welshman was so honorable and we like exalted him for that. And, you know, we were, we were praising everyone who survived and, you know, we, we, we have this like, you know, band of brothers. Um, and then after the war, we're back to like making fun of each other and being the shit of each other. Yes. Like, and we're back to like making fun of the sort of more lower class, like British principalities. And uh, like, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem, it feels like that's not really what the play was. Like, I just didn't Mm. feel like we need that reminder, you know? Interesting. But that, that's true, Julia. That's like the most compelling reading for me. I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, so like what happens to soldiers when war is over kind of mm, a thing. Mm-hmm. Like for Pistol, and I mean, that's like a maybe a sentimental reading of it. But yeah, like at the end, Pistol being like, and now what? I guess I'll go like be a thief. Yeah. It's like, what, is, what do you do then? Yeah. The one thing I think is actually really beautiful about this scene is kind of the way that um, Quinn's death is like kind of treated the same as Falstaff's death. There's this like weird parallel there where at the beginning of the play, we had this sort of like, I think we said earlier, this like Greek moment where like somebody dies off stage and then we're told about it. Mm. Um, and it's this like big important character like spanning all of these plays and and like so full of life and energy. And then we see them sort of just like, background while a play about war goes on and then it's sort of interesting that it's kind of bookended with quickly who again is like spanning plays and you know full of life and you know 
is such a weird, fun character mm. is also then sort of like dies quietly at home and yeah. we continue, you know, the, the next scene is going to be the king, you know? So it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's, it's like, it's weirdly kind. That's the thing that I like about it is, is, is pretty beautiful that the way that they are treated like kind of as this, like, as the same, they're kind of like such a weird yin and yang. I feel like of all the plays mm-hmm. um, and Zoe and I did a very, uh, did a podcast of um, Mary Wives last summer. So I, I like weirdly their vibe in Mary Wives is also so weird. So I just, I love them together as kind of weird foils to each other. Mm. So to have her sort of given a Viking funeral, like him is kind of, <laughs> kind of lovely. Absolutely. Um, Andrew and then Zunum, please. I, I find it pretty disturbing actually. Uh, and I and I, I think part of the reason why I find it disturbing, uh, uh, what I find disturbing is how Shakespeare appears to be treating these characters from uh, Hal's earlier life. And uh, Bardolph and uh, Nim are hung and mm-hmm. Falstaff and quickly die off stage and pistol is left to basically in in destitution and get the gets the stuffing beat out of him and i i don't understand why uh, that has to happen dramatically mm. um i have an inkling that it's somehow to raise up uh henry to raise up the king out of that milieu but th- that to me is troubling that Shakespeare would want to do that. Yeah. It, it rubs me the wrong way. I don't know why. Ab- absolutely. Well, and, and not only did, did Mistress Quickly die, she died in a hospital from a venereal disease, right? In the spittle, in the hospital, the malady of France would be like the French pox, right? Which is an STD. So it, it, it does sort of put everyone into this back into this kind of diseased dark uh poor uh place um yeah zunum i just um wanted to mention um i can imagine this because of the length of the of the act and these scenes they're they're kind of little short episodes or vignettes kind of to, to conclude it, I feel the movement of the scenes just like dropping in on briefly on what happened to, to, to different people. Um, mm. I, I can kind of imagine it as a parade, kind of just parading scenes. Um, and uh, yeah, um, showing back the, the normal, the, you were mentioning, someone was saying before about what happens next. What does normal life look like yeah. after a big event that, that is so alarming and, and that, you know, puts everything in chaos? And then how does everything settle back into a sort of uh, consistent rhythm again? Um, yeah. So I, I think of that when I'm reading this, this kind of awkward, these awkward scenes. Absolutely. Um, Colin? 
Um, on, on a separate note, um, I feel like there is so much opportunity in this scene for prop comedy. Yeah. Uh, so I think if you're going to be adding sound effects, I request all of the leak fully possible. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I will. Uh, I will go to the farmer's market and get a leak. <laughs> Amy. <laughs> I saw shades of Falstaff in Pistol's last lines. Mm. Um, Patches, will I give my cudgeled scar and swear I got them in the Gallia Wars? That sounds like something Falstaff would have done. You know, oh, I got this in the war. Yeah. Um, When he didn't. And then, and this sounds very trite and very un-Shakespeare to me, but this is kind of like um, symbolizing the death of Hal, that if all of the people he used to carouse with are now dead or just not banished, but just, I mean, there's pistol, the cheese stands alone. Um, <laughs> but that sounds, that sounds so trite though, that, oh, well, this symbolizes that no, I, no longer exists. That you actually, know? that makes a lot of sense to me, Amy. I, I think okay. that, that seems like this is the natural death of that world, you know, like yeah. we're, we're done with that. We're done with the taverners. Yeah. They, they've all, they've sort of descended into a, a different play that we don't really see. <laughs> yeah. The war is over and they go back to what? Yeah. Same old, same old, but you know, Mistress Quickly's dead. Falstaff is dead. Bardolph was dead, you know. Yeah. Well, and it it kind of connects back to even as early as uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One. You know, the yeah. the moment when Falstaff comes in and says, "Hey, like Worcester's stolen away. Your father's beard is turned white at the news. This means civil war again." Yeah. There is this kind of there is a kind of sense of like these are the people that fight these wars. These are the people whose lives are ripped apart by these quarrels that, you know, as the, the soldier Williams pointed out, like that, that doesn't, it doesn't really have to do with us why we're here. You know, this, this isn't about us. Um, we're not, we're, we're, we're the servants uh, of our King and we don't have a lot of say in the matter. Yeah, I do. I do find it to be kind of a melancholy ending. And I, I, I think, actually that this is kind of a melancholy ending to the play as as we'll see when we get to the final chorus speech which is like one of the last lines is you know talking about henry's son henry (laughs) very cleverly named um that they lost france and made his england bleed and that's like where we leave it and it's like uh (laughs) Okay, so that was the like glorious history of the hero king who was a warrior king of England and the best general to sit on the end. He left it to his son who lost it and there was a huge amount of civil war and even thousands more died. Okay, see you at the next show. You know, it's like there's something like deeply melancholic um, about the ending of this play. And I think actually could, depending on your interpretation, could very much go through this, the, our next scene, the wooing of Catherine. Um, I, 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 I did see one uh, production, which was very disturbing interpretation of the wooing scene between um, Henry and Catherine uh, that was 
very forceful and it was about the entitlement of Henry to her and her body and um, as the land of France. And it was really, really disturbing. And I, I, I don't know that I sort of, I, that was the only time I've ever seen that interpretation. Usually the scene is kind of very charming, um, but it was, uh, it definitely made me think about the, the line, you, you know, about like, I love France so much that I won't part with a single village of her. Um, and there, there is, you know, there, there is definitely an overlap between imperialistic violence and gendered violence. Um, you know, there's, there's, they use the same metaphors, but shall we, did anyone have any sort of final thoughts on this last little look at Flewellen and Gower and Pistol before we move on? Okay. Um, well, maybe we will just jump right in to act five scene two two this is the first and only time that we see uh king henry with the french king uh, the, the sort of english court and the french court coming together with this guy burgundy who we're gonna have a lot of fun with with this crazy speech coming right up ahead um so him, just so you know i hate him <laughs> Awesome. I love it. Let's let's start there. Um, so here we go. Uh, act five, scene two. Peace to this meeting, wherefore we are met unto our brother France and to our sister, health and fair time of day, joy and good wishes to our most fair and princely cousin, Catherine. And as a branch and member of this royalty by whom this great assembly is contrived, we do salute you, Duke of Burgundy, and princes, French, and peers, health to you all. Right joyous are we to behold your face, most worthy brother England. Fairly met, so are you, princes English, everyone. So happy be the issue, brother England, of this good day and of this gracious meeting, as we are now glad to behold your eyes, your eyes which hitherto have borne in them against the French that met them in their bent, the fatal balls of murdering basilisks, the venom of such looks, we fairly hope, have lost their quality, and that this day shall change all griefs and quarrels into love. To cry amen to that, thus we appear. You English princes all, I do salute you. My duty to you both on equal love. Great kings of France and England that I have labored with all my wits, my pains, and strong endeavors to bring your most imperial majesties unto this bar and royal interview, your mightiness on both parts best can witness. Since then, my office hath so far prevailed that face to face and royal eye to eye you have congreeted. Let it not disgrace me if I demand before this royal view what rub or what impediment there is, why that the naked poor and mangled peace, dear nurse of arts, plenties, and joyful births, should not in this best garden of the world our fertile France put up her lovely visage. Alas, she hath from France too long been chased, and all her husbandry doth lie on heaps, corrupting in its own fertility. Her vine, the merry cheerer of the heart, unpruned dies, her hedges even pleached, like prisoners wildly overgrown with hair. But forth disordered twigs, her follow leaves, the darnel, hemlock, and rank fumatory, doth root upon, while that the culture rusts that should uh, deracinate, is that right, Ari? I believe so. Cool, um, we'll go with that. That should uh, which is a cool. Cool word, uh, cool yeah. 
word that means uproot or eradicate or pluck out. Um, for your garden glossary. <laughs> Wonderful. That <laughs> should to resonate such savagery. That even mead that erst brought sweetly forth, the freckled cowslip, burnet, and green clover, wanting the scythe with all uncorrected rank, conceives by idleness and nothing teems but hateful docks, rough thistles, kexes, burrs, losing both beauty and utility. And all our vineyards, fallows, meads, and hedges, defective in their natures, grow to wildness. Even so, even so, our houses and ourselves and children have lost or do not learn for want of time the sciences that should become our country, but grow like savages as soldiers will, that nothing do but meditate on blood, to swearing and stern looks diffused attire, and everything that seems unnatural. Which to reduce into our former favor, you are assembled, and my speech entreats that I may know the let why gentle peace should not expel these inconveniences, and bless us with her former qualities. Oh my God! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, tell us, tell us about Burgundy here, Zoe. Okay, so. <laughs> Marmy as fuck is what I'm getting. <laughs> like just sucking up to both of them. And I mean, I do, I appreciate um, the gardening and plant metaphors. It reminds me a bit of, um, I did part of that in The Winter's Tale a couple of years ago. And we cut a lot of one of her speeches where she's juxtaposing positive flowers and negative flowers to talk about how she wants essentially to bang Florizel, but she's scared too. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, I remember that one. That one's good. Oh, I remember that one. That one's bad. <laughs> so that was my initial thought when I first started looking at this uh, the night that we did the last one. Um, but going along with what you were saying earlier uh, about the language of colonization being, you know, kind of akin to language we use with misogynistic sort of things. It's just really gross, honestly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's upsetting to say these things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a, it, it, to me, it actually, this speech connects us back to Richard II. Mm. Garden, mm -hmm. scene, yeah. right? And the yeah. Yeah. the garden being akin to good government, right? If, you, mm -hmm. if you're a good gardener, you're a good governor, um, mm -hmm. which I quite like that. I think we should have more gardeners as part of uh, the government. I think that would be good. Can you keep a plot of earth alive? If so, you can be part of the U.S. government. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that would weed out a couple people. Um, and I guess, I mean, the idea of stewardship of a land, which, you know, kind of ties yeah. back to the land back movement. Like, okay, okay, that's, that's better. You can live with that. Yeah. Well, and this is a really interesting, Burgundy is always like this sort of wild card in, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays because Burgundy, depending on the play and the time period, Burgundy either allies with the French or the English. And it is really a power that's like very, very important but also very independent from both France and England. Um, mm -hmm. in, for example, in our, if we're going sort of chronologically in Henry VI, part one, Joan, uh, Joan of Arc has this amazing 
scene where she persuades the Duke of Burgundy, who has allied himself with England, to turn back and ally with France. Uh, come back to us, she says, and he finally is, he's persuaded. And it's a, it's a huge moment for the French because they gain this, this very big power. So it is interesting to me, this is a new character that we, we haven't met before that kind of represents, it's sort of like for uh, Julia, who is in uh, King John, it's like when the Cardinal walks in, right? Cardinal Pandolf. It's like, wait, there's a third authority? Like, wait a second. This just got so much more complicated. And, and it does seem that Burgundy is here as a, you know, to be the sort of diplomat, to be Switzerland and to sort of, but it is also funny. It's like, basically all you say is like, I really just want to know why we can't have peace. And then you say it, you like go into this super long speech and conclude with not a change of thought, but the same thought, you know? So it is kind of a strange, a strange character. And I, I don't quite like in my mind, I kind of can't in my mind's eye, like I don't have a sort of picture of this character. I don't know why it's like very opaque to me. Also just wanted to say like, so Catherine doesn't speak English, but her mom and dad sure do. You know, it's like, why didn't they teach her English? What's going on here? That was a <laughs> observation. I also can't tell like how sassy the queen is being in this. Yeah. I can't tell if she's actually, I mean, I guess that's what makes the scene interesting, right? Is that the French have lost, so they have to, you know, sort of, they're in a, a difficult spot, but it's a lot of like politeness behind resentment is sort of how I read oh, it. Oh, totally. I, I don't know. It might not be. Well, but also it's like, she says, your eyes are like murdering basilisks. I mean, mm-hmm. whoa. <laughs> yeah. She's like, but I hope we can play nice now. <laughs> yeah. Like after you've killed, however, how many was it? 10,000 of my, yeah. of our people. Yeah. Hope you're done with. The, hope you got that out of your system. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, it's also kind of extraordinary that Henry is meeting with these people when their son was killed by his forces. Like that's another thing that the Dauphin was killed. Did <laughs> <laughs> not see him die on screen. <laughs> Maybe he escaped. Maybe he escaped. I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't put it past him to have escaped. And but that's gotta, I mean, that's gotta add a sort of definitely a very sort of heavy atmosphere to the beginning of the of this. Um I think the Duke of Orleans, who was their nephew, survived, but their son sure didn't. From a, a human perspective, like how would you walk into this room? I just can't imagine what would a sort of contemporary equivalent, maybe like meeting someone in court and having to be very well behaved, but it's just like, ooh, high stakes. Shall we? I mean, being oh, yeah. kind of uh, the, the, the royal representatives of their country and everything, they're sort of like their family often end up being their transactions, kind of mm. like what's happening to Catherine. Like, mm-hmm. Everybody knows what's happening around her, but she doesn't really have much they kind of keep her separate from everything she's just the element that is being an exchange and and same with the son i feel like he was involved with this war at the from the beginning 
and the I think as from a parent from a parent perspective they kind of had to let go uh very early on and then as as rulers they they have to accept kind of the conventions and rules of war once it comes about and yeah so definitely but there's all these layers and none no no layer disappears from the other so yeah it's it's very conflictive i think how it could be played out in terms of the atmosphere of the scene and does yeah like how much does she know in this moment i mean as as we're about to hear henry say she is our capital demand which is kind of an extreme way to think about a person and she's the the first section of the of the articles of this agreement which is interesting because as we learned from the chorus in act three Catherine was offered to Henry in act three and a few with a few dukedoms and he said no no so now he's the he does want Catherine as part of this peace treaty um but it's yeah boy sure is I'm really glad as a woman that I did not live in this time period <laughs> just like this would suck <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah not that it doesn't sometimes still suck but uh, <laughs> just like man very little sort of personal choice and so many issues yeah Any, on that yeah. note uh, uh before you had commented about how um you had seen one uh dark production where that's the the wooing scene was um uh used the interpretation of this being really icky and sticky um i'm surprised that this that isn't done more because my mm. first time seeing this scene when we were watching the Branagh version i couldn't see it as anything other than uncomfortable mm. and i don't know if they're leading into that in that production but yeah i'm surprised that it's not as common of a reading yeah yeah no that's a that's a good point colin um well, I think, and I think we can, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get into the nitty gritty of the text um, for sure and sort of seeing what we see. Um, but let us, yeah, let's go through just this next page, which is going to get us to everyone exiting except for Henry and Catherine and Alice. So um, whenever you're ready, King Henry. If, Duke of Burgundy, you would the peace whose want gives growth to the imperfections which you have cited, you must buy that peace with full accord to all our just demands, whose tenors and particular effects you have scheduled briefly in your hands. The king hath heard them to the which as yet there is no answer made. Well, then the peace which you before so urged lies in his answer. I have, but with a cursory eye or glance the articles, pleaseth your grace to appoint some of your counsel presently to sit with us once more, with better heed to resurvey them. We will suddenly pass our accept and peremptory answer. Brother, we shall. Go, Uncle Exeter and Brother Clarence and you, Brother Gloucester, Warwick and Huntingdon, go with the king and take with you free power to ratify, augment, or alter as your wisdom's best shall see advantageable for our dignity anything in or out of our demands, and we'll consign thereto. Will you, fair sister, go with the princes, or stay here with us? 
our gracious brother, I will go with them. Haply a woman's voice may do some good when articles too nicely urged be stood on. Yet leave our cousin Catherine here with us. She is our capital demand comprised within the forerank of our articles. She hath good leave. Okay, let's just pause there very briefly. Um, this seems like kind of a tense room. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm not. My read on this room is that there's there's a lot of mm, sort of microaggressions <laughs> happening for lack of a better term. What, what what did anyone else sort of think just in this this very brief section that we just went through? No, I completely agree. It feels very kind of passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't said anything yet, so yeah, you know. <laughs> it is funny though. Like I I do think that Henry does have a point here, which is like, okay, so you urged peace. My terms are in your hands. What <laughs> is the response? Oh, there hasn't been one that's been made. Okay, cool. If we could get that, maybe we could uh, move forward. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like really, it's um, <laughs> it's kind of awkward. It's like showing up to the really important meeting and like not reading the agenda and being like, so why are we here today? Uh, <laughs> like a little bit like, um, if you can go out and read it and then come back in, that would be great. <laughs> like, it's sort of silly. Um, but then the French king is like, I glanced at it. Yeah. <laughs> I just spilled some orange juice on it. So could you give me a new copy? Like, <laughs> really intense. But interesting to me also that Henry gives his brothers um, total uh, permission to ratify whatever they see fit, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, Amy. Um. I was just, I've, I've got my Bevington edition here. Excellent. And at the beginning, he gives in the gloss, um, uh, between Acts 4 and 5, there is historically an interval of about five years, during which Henry made a second campaign in France that brought the French to terms in the Treaty of Troyes, with, with which the play ends. So wow. whatever this treaty is, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's been five years. I mean, no. it feels like, you know, hi, we got off the battlefield. Okay, we won France. Let's go and and rock this. Um, yeah. But but you know, Bevington is doing things with dates and treaties and saying, hey, this is like five years later. Yeah. It is strange and wonderful the ways that uh, Shakespeare compresses and expands time in the history right. plays frequently. Right. You know, it's like most of the history plays will take place across 10 years if you're looking historically at when these things happen. And it always yeah. seems like it takes place in about a week, yeah. uh, which is much more dramatic, of course, and much more exciting. But it is also like this, this, there does seem to be an immediacy of just following Agincourt. Like there is something about this room that is still mourning um, the, the loss of, of France. Um, the king, the king of France, though, seems so kind of, oh, welcome. Okay, now you're the king, yeah. and it's like, really? Yeah. Would that would another king say, hey, come on, take over? I'm leaving. Um, it's just he seems so docile. Yeah. Uh, 
compared to how he was portrayed in previous acts. I mean, when he sent Mountjoy, I mean, you know, he's pretty rough sometimes. So. Absolutely. That's a great point. Well, and, and I think something I remember reading about this king, this particular French king, is that he suffered periodic bouts of madness as well. And when that happened, there would be these very powerful French factions of the nobility that would just take over the rule. So he was a very kind of unstable power presence in the realm of France. And it's not ever talked about that he sort of suffered these bouts of madness, but um, it is an interesting sort of historical note that this was just like a very strange time for the French as well. Um, yeah, Andrew. I, uh, I don't think we've talked about this, although it's been a while now since our last session, so we may have at some point touched on it, but I, and this is just my personal opinion, but I don't really think this is a, a fabulous play in a lot of ways. And this scene is maybe an example of, of the, I, I, I hesitate to call it sloppiness, but it, it is almost sloppy. Mm. It is almost, um, uh, not, not sloppy. Um, it's brisk, right? He's promised us, uh, is that at the end of Henry four part two, I think that we're going to get to meet, uh, Catherine, and she's going to be so charming and great. Yeah. So we've got to get to that scene before the show is over. Yeah. And so it's almost as if, well, let's just bring in the French royalty. Let's have the council of and the political stuff go off stage. We just need a little taste of them to establish where we are and what's going on, and then yeah. let's get to the charming little wooing scene. And yeah. um, it's one example of, uh, I think, several in the play that. Uh, to me, speak to some kind of um, his heart's not always in it in <laughs> Henry V. Uh, at least that's the impression I get. Uh, there's a lot of just, uh, well, we'll just slap that in there and get that done with and move on to the stuff the audience wants to see. And, you know, I do wonder, I mean, we've talked about this so much, but I do wonder if there's something in that about where's Falstaff? Like we're missing him. We don't, because in, in, in Henry the fourth parts one and two, anytime you have a scene with Falstaff, it just seems like time and the space just expands and we just get to rest in the glory that is Falstaff. And like, we don't really get that in this play, you know? I, um, I absolutely agree. And having, and going through it this time, um, I, I'm, it makes me really wonder about what happened with Kemp mm -hmm. and, uh, it makes me want to know that story of yeah. what happened between Shakespeare and Kemp and the rest of the uh, Lord Chamberlain's men at that time. Why did he leave? And why did we lose Falstaff like that? And I, uh, there's no answers in this play, but mm -hmm. the you can feel that absence in it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's not as great a play as... Uh, the place with Falstaff in it yeah. is because he's out and Shakespeare just knows he has to write it, but can't really bring himself to, to, mm. to write it uh, as it should be written. Um, if Kemp were still around, I just want to know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds me of television um, series that maybe they'll go on for three years. And then all of a sudden you hear it hasn't been picked up for the fourth season 
and they use the last one and they cram everything they can into the last to tie up everything. Mm. It's, it's, it's almost like, hey, we were going to elongate this out and maybe write another play about it or something, but we lost our money. And so we're having yeah. to wrap this up quick. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that might have something to do with the actors as well. That, hey, we lost our two, you know, actors and we're just going to wrap it up. Yeah. I love that idea that it's like the mini series that like didn't get as much funding as, as it was expecting to. So they're like, okay, we were going to write a, another act. Act five was going to have seven scenes and we were going to have a whole domestic life with Catherine and Henry. And we were going to see their son be born and blah, blah. Um, let's just do the wooing and then throw in a prologue like or an epilogue at the end. And we'll call it a day. You know, there is something I, I do agree. There is something particularly about this, the ending of this play that seems very slapdash at best. You know, it's like, well, shall we? just jump right on into the ever famous uh wooing scene i think important to note that we've now we're now about to shift into prose uh where we had just been in uh verse for the whole first bit and we will not return to verse until we stop talking about catherine in the second to last page of the play yeah, and because this is a very long section, we might we might just take a few breaks here and there and sort of talk about the nature of the scene. But yeah, um, go ahead whenever you're ready. Fair Catherine, and most fair, will you vouchsafe to teach a soldier terms such as will enter at a lady's ear and plead his love suit to her gentle heart? Your Majesty shall mock at me. I cannot speak your England. <laughs> Fair Catherine, if you will love me soundly with your French heart, I will be glad to hear you confess it brokenly with your English tongue. Do you like me, Kate? Pardonnez-moi, I cannot tell what is like me. An angel is like you, Kate, and you are like an angel. Que dit-il? Que je suis semblable à les anges? Oui, vraiment, sur votre grâce, ainsi dit-il. I said so, dear Catherine, and I must not blush to affirm it. Oh, bon Dieu, les langues des hommes sont pleines de tromperies. Well, what says she, fair one, that the tongues of men are full of deceits? Oui, that the, the tongues of the man's is be full of deceits. Uh, that is the pr princess. The princess is the better English woman. If faith, Kate, my wooing is fit for thy understanding. I'm glad thou canst speak no better English, for if thou couldst, thou wouldst find me such a plain king that thou wouldst think I had sold my farm to buy my crown. I know no ways to mince it in love, but directly to say, I love you. Then, if you urge me farther than to say, do you, in faith, I wear out my suit. Give me your answer, if faith do, and so clap hands in a bargain. How say you, lady? So honor, me understand well. Mary, if you would put me to verses or to dance for your sake, Kate, why you did undo me. For the one, I have neither words nor measure, and for the other, I have no strength in measure, yet a reasonable measure in strength. If I could win a lady at leapfrog, 
or by vaulting into my saddle with my armor on my back under the correction of bragging, be it spoken, I should quickly leap into a wife. Or if I might buffet for my love or bound my horse for her favors, I could lay on like a butcher and sit like a jackanapes, never off. But before God, Kate, I cannot look greenly nor gasp out my eloquence, nor I have no cunning and protestation, only downright oaths which I never use till urged, nor never break for urging. If thou canst love a fellow of this temper, Kate, whose face is not worth sunburning, that never looks in his glass for love of anything he sees there, let thine eye be thy cook. I speak to thee, plain soldier. If thou canst love me for this, take me. If not, to say to thee that I shall die is true, but for thy love, by the Lord, no, yet I love thee too. And while thou livest, dear Kate, take a fellow of plain and uncoined constancy, for he perforce must do thee right, because he hath not the gift to woo in other places. For these fellows of infinite tongue that can rhyme themselves into ladies' favors, they do always reason themselves out again. What? A speaker is but a prater. A rhyme is but a ballad, a good leg will fall, a straight back will stoop, a black beard will turn white, a curled pate will grow bald, a fair face will wither, a full eye will wax hollow. But good heart, Kate, is the sun and the moon, or, or rather the sun and not the moon, for it shines bright and never changes, but keeps his course truly. If thou would have such a one, take me. And take me, take a soldier, take a soldier, take a king. And what sayest thou then to my love? Speak, my fair, and fairly I pray thee. Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? No, it is not possible you should love the enemy of France, Kate. But in loving me, you should love the friend of France, for I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine. And Kate, when France is mine and I am yours, then yours is France and you are mine. I cannot tell what is that. Can we just pause no. here just mm. briefly to go through that, that big long <clears throat> speech that you just had, Andrew? Um, I did want, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when I was doing some research for Henry IV part one, I was really curious as to how Prince Hal was injured um, in the battle because, you know, he comes in at one point and his father says, I prithee Harry, withdraw thou, thyself, thou bleats too much. Like you're, you are far too injured to be on the field. And I was doing a little research on this and I discovered that the way that the 16 year old Hal was injured in the Battle of Shrewsbury is an arrow struck his face and went six inches into his skull. So he had this huge arrow like sticking out of his face. And the reason we know this is there's actually a, there's like this amazing treatise of the doctor that took care of him and had to heal this really disgusting wound, right? And and how he had to take it out bit by bit. And I'll I'll post it when we when we when I uh, post this episode. But that to me, 
gives this speech so much more meaning. Like if you think about Henry is not, no offense, Jude Law. I saw Jude Law play Henry V in London a, a long time ago, but not as like Jude Law or as this sort of like, you know, dashing guy, but as this guy who has seen battle since he was a teenager, who has scars all over his face and his and his hands and his body, like he's just been torn apart by war. To me, that actually makes this scene more pleasant somehow i don't know why because like it is him being honest like he he isn't a wooer his life has been war um and in that way i kind of it makes me somehow like this speech more even though there are moments of it that are like okay but i don't know that was just that was my thought i was just wanted to put that out there um but yeah andrew what were what were some of your thoughts as you were going through this very long prose speech um I, i'd say similar on, along those lines i to me his um his wooing reads as genuine uh and i i tend to trust what he's saying here that he um uh that he actually does has actually fallen in love with her in this moment um, or in whatever br brief instances of, of knowing about her that he may have had <laughs> before this scene. Um, and that uh, I, I, I guess one way to put this is that I don't read this as um, a tactic uh, that mm. he's uh, speaking, um, underestimating himself or speaking ill of himself to try and win her uh i i, I tend to th read it as honesty and uh li like you say that it, it's um it's a dramatic tactic to make him in this moment um uh for the audience to feel some empathy with him I, okay he's a king but he's also as you say been horribly scarred and, and he's not a great looking guy <laughs> whoever played him on the stage i'm sure was but I, I would be curious to know what they would have done at the time in terms of his appearance it is the first time i uh, there might be some other mention of it uh earlier of his appearance uh, um, this kind of rough in whatever way whether the scarring uh I don't know if that was generally known at the time, um, yeah. uh, at Shakespeare's time, that Henry would have been uh, scarred, uh, wear facial scars. But um, anyway, yeah, uh, it does make me wonder about that element of it. Oh, absolutely. And I just, I mean, to me, it was just like such an exciting discovery that that this was because I always wondered, like, you know, did he get scratched? Did like what happened to him in the battle? Because he was. It was clear that he was wounded and Shakespeare wrote it into the play. So to me, it was just like, oh, my God, can you imagine being 16 and like having an arrow go through your face? And actually, that's also how. Yeah, uh, oh, sorry. What was that, Andrew? I was just going to corroborate that that description, the the doctor's journal of what he did in the treatment is that, considering the time period is, is such an amazing description of a medical yeah. treatment for such a horrific wound. It really is um, uh, terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, you know, just the idea that, um, 
I, because I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, I think Burbage was probably like a very good looking actor and was very charismatic. And I think that Henry has been very charismatic with us throughout this play, but there, this is a different kind of charisma. You know, this is a different, I always find the, the line, if I could win a lady at leapfrog or like jumping up into my saddle, I'd be like, I'd be such a good ladies man, you know, which I think is just like, it's a really funny image, like this guy playing leapfrog. And he's like, look, I've got all these ladies lined up to see me because like, this is the only way he knows how to like show off. It's, it's just, I don't know. There's something about it. That's like really pathetic to me. And like also very funny, but yeah, I, th- I, I oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, ahead, please. I was going to say, yeah. Cause I mean, we, since we know that subtext isn't necessarily really a thing if it's, you know, interpreted strictly as it would have been in the period. And we don't get anything from him saying, ah, here's how I'm going to win this lady by lying or whatever. Mm. You know, there is no reason not to take it at face value. And the vulnerability and humility that he's showing here is really, because he could just be like, okay, well, you're mine now, so let's go. But he doesn't. He takes the time to actually try which is still not, I mean, obviously great because she doesn't get a choice, but it is much better than it certainly might have been. So I, I really like this speech quite a bit. There is something to me about this as well, that this is like a love scene that's in prose that's really weird and unusual, right? That doesn't normally happen in Shakespeare. Normally, if it's a, a scene about love, it's a scene that's in verse, um so we think that might be because the french doesn't work (laughs) in meter or (laughs) well friends french apparently works very well in alexandrians like in Mm. in units of six or 12 but not so not so well in 10 uh english works very well in five and ten yeah it does uh kind of support that the the prose supports henry's inability to (laughs) woo in that way right yeah, um, that's he, a good point. If yeah. he can't woo as a as a poet, uh, he has to woo in, in prose, even though he speaks in poetry all the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Colin or Izzy, sorry. Yes, um, this was just related to the talking about injuries and stuff like that. But it's also interesting to note, although not as relevant to this play, but Hotspur also died right from an arrow to the face. Yes think through the eye um yeah but poor Hotspur it's it's interesting to just in all these scenes we're talking about battles these big battles and you know it'd be it wouldn't be very satisfying to watch so that's why they don't do it but you don't see like a ton of battles that are just like a ton of arrows and you don't get that one-on-one like even I'm thinking like the a battle that jumps out to me as like lots of arrows is like Helm's Deep. In- yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> the What people think about more is like the one-on-one, like, you know, fights well, between them. And yet, like, it's, that's such a fatal thing that was like in Agincourt as well. There were a lot of archers and stuff. And I just think that's something we don't think about because narratively, we're, we're not watching a documentary about yeah. like, without reenactment of these things. So it's, we always, I feel like at least I picture 
when I picture battles like all oh, these people on horses and these huge like broad swords or uh, long swords depending on the era and it's just like but it's almost like sometimes they're not even that close to each other and I think yeah. that's crazy. Well, and that was part of the the devastation of Agincourt, right? Was that it was the English archers with their longbows that actually caused a huge number of the fatalities of the French. But there is something a little bit less human. There's something dehumanizing to me about those deaths as opposed to, you know, that beautiful speech that we got of Exeter's describing the two like cousins in this very beautiful sort of homoerotic speech about them dying with each other and on the battlefield. Right. But those, those were sort of, we assume sword wounds, but yeah, it is definitely the machinery of warfare. Um, definitely historically had a lot of importance in these plays and how it was changing. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons that Agincourt is one of the most famous battles in military history because of this innovation of the English uh, longbow archers. But I also, yeah, I, I, I think just, just getting back to the text, I definitely, there's a couple moments in this speech where I kind of I lose the thread a little bit. And sometimes when that happens, I do wonder if like the characters losing the thread a little bit. Like sometimes when language gets really convoluted, I'm like, there's probably a reason. And maybe it it doesn't, it isn't supposed to make perfect sense, you know? But yeah, that that was just a, a thought. The, I should quickly leap into a wife is like a really, really difficult phrase. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not. As with usually, I'm not a fan um, of that moment. But I do, I think the part that is interesting and very unlike most, I'm just thinking of all the sort of great wooing scenes in Shakespeare and the sort of less savory ones. Um, the the ones about, the, the one here that a black beard will turn white, a curled pate will grow bald, a fair face will wither. Like there's something very kind of nihilistic about this wooing too of like, well, you could probably get a, a less scarred, more handsome husband, but you know what? Just give it a few years. We're all going to be <laughs> like aged and stooped and, and bald. And like, you know, there's something like kind of funny about that. Um, and, he, and he's going to come back to that in a little bit with the the um, the piece about how I'm, I'm really hideous now, but at least I'm not going to get any worse. <laughs> seems like a very unconventional way to sort of talk so much of the the love speech and the wooing is like about beauty right and about um uh doing these sort of natural metaphors and nature metaphors and those are just not here at all this is a totally different realm there's not a lot of imagery it's 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 just very different a lot of the time it feels like he's talking to himself because he realizes yes. that he's not getting through to her. So he kind of just like takes advantage and can kind of say whatever he wants. And is like, oh, I'm not really good at this, am I? And yeah. you don't get it either. That's great. You know, and he's just <laughs> kind of, I don't know. I totally agree, Zuna. That's so I, funny. I, I agree with that. I, I, I really do like that reading because whenever... I, I'm looking at this, it, it feels a little 
just off that the the idea of wooing seems to me like ah yes i need to convince you but this there's absolutely no agency in this scene at (laughs) all it's like oh what if she says no oops okay then get the shackles like that it's it, it it's so gross but if if you read it as he's just kind of talking to himself and just you know having a speak then i i like that reading it makes it rationalizes it a little bit more for me where she's just kind of an observer to him talking in circles um uh and also ariana i agree with you with some of these lines in this big pro speech are just kind of out there and what that confused me but let thine eye be thy cook trying to chew on that line there and that 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 kind of feels like it plays with agency in a weird way because she's just kind of there as an observer the whole time it's like but let thine eye be the let um let thine eye be thy cook like okay well you can you know try to have agency in the way that you look at things not that you're actually going to be able to choose anything right now but you can think about it in different ways I, I, I am really enjoying this image of like Henry kind of shuffling around the stage and kind of doing a kind of stream of consciousness version of this speech while like Alice and Catherine are just kind of staring at him and he's like, oh God, this is a disaster. Um, Amy. <laughs> well, it's, you know, normally the, when you have kind of a romance type theme, um, going on between two characters, there's, you know, it's in verse, there's shared lines, there's a lot yeah. of um, couplets and such. And we saw that during the war. Um, we yeah. shot, saw shared lines um, uh, it, that was in verse. And now here's Henry V. And I think he's a fish out of water. He doesn't yeah. know how to woo a woman. Yeah. He knows how to do a war and he's very passionate about war. But when it comes to women, it's kind of like, well, you know, I'll, I'll hit her up with logic and then we'll just go from there. It's, I, does that make sense? Because this totally. seems so odd. Yeah. You know, um, I, 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 and I, I love that, that it's like, he's like, I'm going to explain to you why I love you through a series of military tactics. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something yeah. like very kind of clinical about it. It's kind yeah. of entertaining. Um, and I, and I actually think that if, if this scene is funny, a lot of the comedy comes from this just like inability to understand each other. Right. I mean, there's, there's something that kind of harkens back to our, our lovely Mortimer couple in Henry the fourth part one, who is another couple that also like does not speak the same language and therefore can only communicate physically i mean like it's it's very and she and they're like crazy about each other you know but there is there is kind of this i i remember um isabel and my mentor uh always talking about the mortimers like they're the most perfect couple they've got like everything going for them and they cannot communicate now that's the perfect relationship you know it was like oh that's so dark but like there is something there is something kind of hilarious about you realize it's almost like the language is so self-conscious because i don't know what there's something about the henry's language in this that's like so 
yeah, I guess self-conscious is the only thing I, I, I can go with there. Um, and that's like why, what, I don't know. I need this scene to be cute and romantic and funny. Like I just yeah. can't take the darkness yeah. at the end of this play on top of the darkness that is the rest of this play. <laughs> And it's like, the truth of it is that's always going to be there. Like the yeah. power dynamics are always going to be there. We know that Catherine has no agency. We know, like that is inherently there. You don't have to like harp on the fact that that is just how all of these yeah. gender dynamics and all of these plays are. But it, it is, yeah, because they don't understand each other. It does, it, you have to be able to sense like his clumsiness and his, like awkwardness. And at the same time, I feel like Shakespeare is so great at writing these little like awkward love scenes <laughs> that really make you root for the two lovers in a way. And it was making me think of Rosalind. Like I love the, my favorite line in this, in this weird prose speech is when he says, to say to thee that I shall die is true, but for thy love by the Lord, no. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's very like Rosalind being like, you know, Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. Yes. Like he's, he is, he's like, I can't use fancy language. And at the same time, it is what you want. Like, yeah, you kind of want, you don't want to be wooed. And that's what Shakespeare's famous for, right? Like he subverts all of the tropes of like in all of his sonnets. It's not, you know, he's, that's like his whole thing. Yeah. Like this is how people usually woo people. And I'm going to flip that on its head. Yeah, and I feel like he's doing that really well here. And funnily enough, it's not in you know any type of poetry or sonnet form, but it's like a complete subversion of what you would think someone would want to hear. Yeah, uh, which is what makes it so like charming and yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think, and it's also that this is a Judy Dench thing too. She was talking about playing Cleopatra, and they were asking, you know, how do you embody a character that's so complex and so different from you know moment to moment and she was saying that every time she would walk on stage and each scene she would be playing a completely different person and she was like so yeah. by the end you get the full scope of who that character mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. and I sort of feel like that's what Shakespeare wrote in writing the role of Henry it's like every scene he's so different we see him we see him as a really compelling speaker in the beginning. We see him like rattling off these brilliant turns of phrase. And we see him as a soldier. We see him as a really scary guy. We see him at you know, a point of weakness. And now we're seeing him a completely different side we haven't seen yet. It's like, how many versions of him are there? So yeah. by the end, you get like this really full, interesting person. Absolutely. Oh, I like that a lot. Um, Andrew, did you have something to add? Oh, um, oh, right. I was thinking about how Shakespeare had promised us uh, another play with um, Sir John in it, and he's going to make you marry with with Catherine, and um, that image of her is going to be so so charming, and, and uh, she'll make you marry, and all this. And then he gets to it, and his tactic seems to be to make uh, Henry as uncharming as possible, I guess, so that you just assume she's charming because he doesn't give her anything to say. Um, it's a very strange tactic. Absolutely. And actually, I, I want to say, I think maybe the best version of this scene I ever saw, I don't know, Zoe, were you there with me? When it, 
it was this thing that a whole bunch of the the UK drama schools were doing this thing where they sent two of their actors to the globe and there was this yeah and there was this incredible I still remember they were from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland this young actress and actor doing the scene and they were just extraordinary and like the crowd which was all drama students like the entire crowd the entire globe was just filled with UK drama students everyone lost their shit during this scene like everyone was like oh my god and during the applause like the guy standing next to me was like hire them like just like screaming like somebody sign those two you know and it was just like such a funny like what a weird scene to choose to do in like a scene thing but somehow they made it work and they were both awkward and charming and I and I and I I do think it 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 does work in that way um and I think all of this is going to going to lead to the wonderful line we're going to get is that we are the makers of manners Kate you know like there's something about neither of them really knows how to be a lover right or a wooer but they're gonna make it up and they're gonna set new standards of how people interact um so there is there is something like i don't know there's something i think why i find this scene charming is because i also kind of find it pathetic and there's something about that combination that really works for me shall we go from uh catherine's i cannot tell what is that i cannot tell what is that no, Kate, I, I will tell thee in French, which I'm sure will hang upon my tongue like a new married wife about her husband's neck, hardly to be shook off. Je uh, sur la possession de France et quand vous avez la possession de moi. Uh, let me see what then. Now, St. Dennis be my speed. <clears throat> uh, donc votre est France, et vous êtes mien. <laughs> it is as easy for me, Kate, to conquer the kingdom as to speak so much more French. I shall never move thee in French unless it be to laugh at me. Sauf votre honneur, le français que vous parlez, il est meilleur que l'anglais lequel je parle. No, faith is not, Kate. But I, speaking of my tongue and I, thine, most truly, falsely, must needs be granted to be much at one. But, Kate, dost thou understand thus much English? Canst thou love me? I cannot tell. Can any of your neighbors tell, Kate? I'll ask them. Come, I know thou lovest me. And at night, when you come into your closet, you'll question this gentlewoman about me. And I know, Kate, you will to her dispraise those parts in me that you love with your heart. But, good Kate, mock me mercifully, the rather gentle prin princess, because I love thee cruelly. If ever thou beest mine, Kate, as I have a saving faith within me tells me thou shalt, I get thee with scambling. And thou must therefore needs prove a good soldier breeder. Shall not thou and I, between St. Dennis and St. George, compound a boy, half French, half English, that shall go to Constantinople and take the Turk by the beard? Shall we not? What sayest thou, my fair flower de luce? I do not know that. No, 
Tis hereafter to know, but now to promise. Do but now promise, Kate, you will endeavor for your French part of such a boy, and for my English moiety, take the word of a king and a bachelor. How answer you? La plus belle Catherine du monde, mon très cher divin déesse. Your Majesty, a false French enough to deceive the most sage demoiselle that is in France. <laughs> now, now fie upon my false French. By mine honor, in true English, I love thee, Kate, by which honor I dare not swear thou lovest me, yet my blood begins to flatter me that thou dost, notwithstanding the poor and untempering effect of my visage. Now, bestrew my father's ambition. He was thinking of civil wars when he got me. Therefore was I created with a stubborn outside, with an aspect of iron, that when I come to woo ladies, I fright them. But in faith, Kate, the elder I wax, the better I shall appear. My comfort is that old age, that ill layer up of beauty, can do no more spoil upon my face. Thou hast me, if thou hast me, at the worst, and thou shalt wear me if thou wear me better and better. And therefore tell me, most fair Catherine, will you have me? Put off your maiden blushes. Avouch the thoughts of your heart with the looks of an empress. Take me by the hand and say, Harry of England, I am thine. Which word thou shalt no sooner bless mine ear withal, but I will tell thee aloud, England is thine, Ireland is thine, France is thine, and Henry Plantagenet is thine, who, though I speak it before his face, if he be not fellow with the best king, thou shalt find the best king of good fellows. Come, your answer in broken music, for thy voice is music, and thy English broken. Therefore, queen of all, Catherine, break thy mind to me. In broken English, wilt thou have me? That is as it shall please the roi mon père. Uh, nay, it will please him, Kate. It shall please him, Kate. Then it shall also content me. Upon that I kiss your hand, and I call you my queen. Laissez, Monseigneur, laissez, laissez! Ma foi, je ne veux point que vous abaissez votre grandeur en baissant le main de votre seigneurie indique serviteur. Excusez-moi, je vous supplie, mon très puissant seigneur. And I will kiss your lips, Kate. Les dames et demoiselles pour être baissées devant leur noce, il n'est pas la coutume de France. Madam, my interpreter, what says she? That is not be the fashion for les ladies of France. I cannot tell what is baisé en English. To kiss. Your Majesty entend better que moi. Yeah. It is not a fashion for the maids in France to kiss before they are married, would she say? Oui, vraiment. Oh, Kate, nice customs curtsy to great kings. Dear Kate, you and I cannot be confined within the weak list of a country's fashion. We are the makers of manners, Kate, and the liberty that follows our places stops the mouth of all fine faults, as I will do yours. 
for upholding the nice fashion of your country and denying me a kiss, therefore patiently and yielding. You have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. There's more eloquence in a sugar touch of them than in the tongues of the French council, and they should sooner persuade Harry of England than a general petition of monarchs. Here comes your father. <laughs> Um, let's pause there. I love, ah, here comes your father. Oh shit! Uh, so tell me about these these last couple pages. Uh, uh, all three of you, uh, and sort of, uh, have we have we changed? Are we on similar ground as we were before? Any interesting new developments in terms of the sort of character and plot of this section? I personally love the. Uh, the moment where he blames his father for his stubborn <laughs> outside he's like he was thinking about civil wars when he begot me and therefore i i i frightened women um which is you know there we go it's a callback to king henry the fourth part one as well um as well as richard the second i mean it really does feel like we're we're feeling the resonances of all the other parts of the miniseries in this <laughs> in this final final act oh yeah please zoe please 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 i was just gonna say this really nails home for me that you can't be so cynical about this scene because it's like then why does it exist like mm. he doesn't need to do any of this he has like it's agreed upon he has the right to marry this person. Like if, you know, if the French king agrees to it, it's done. She doesn't have any agency. So it's like, you don't need this scene at all. So it has, sort of has to be this like wooing scene. When he asks for consent multiple times, which is way more than you see. And I can't think of it in a single other history play or really even a lot of other Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the stuff that he says to her in French talking about how he's gonna have France the way she has him. Um, if my translation is correct, which, my, yeah, yeah, it, his French is not good, but that's kind of what <laughs> he's saying there, um, which is adorable. I think it's very cute. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it is really, I think that the cynical reading is just kind of one of those edgelord Shakespeare things. It's really not <laughs> the intention of the scene, if you really look at it. It also, to me, the, 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 the point where it, it stops working is, if he has been very physical with her for the whole scene, then when he says, I'm going to kiss your hand and she just goes, oh my God, oh my God, no, you can't do that. No, 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 this isn't what we do. We don't do this. Like he can't, he couldn't have gotten to this point in the scene and been super rough and physical with her and gotten absolutely no reaction. And then when he offers to kiss her hand, she's like, oh no, that's not what we do. You know, like th there, there is something to me in that, she becomes so loquacious when he says, and with that, I will kiss your hand. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't. Oh, I'm embarrassed. No, 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 please don't be. But, and she also says like, so the, the translation that I have is by my faith, I would not at all want you to lower your dignity by kissing the hand of one, our Lord, unworthy servant. Pardon me. I beg you, my most mighty Lord. It isn't, and then it isn't the custom in France for women and maidens to be kissed, to be kissed before their marriage, right? So there is something about, about that interpretation. Yeah, and I, I mean, it was so shocking when I saw it. I was really like, 
that it began with um i must i'm oh the the line i get thee with scambling right meaning like scuffling or struggling that uh this was actually a, a female henry v uh started scrambling with kate and she was resisting him and trying to get away and and it was became a very violent kind of rape imagery of like this boy that we're going to be get is going to be the best soldier ever so you better you know and it just again like it was so it was so dark after such a dark play it was really like i just left and i felt a little bit shattered by it but i think yeah, i i yeah i really do think that there is there is something so kind of cutesy about the sort of like oh no oh my god you can't kiss my hand that's so inappropriate like if that's inappropriate like how could we get away with a lot of other stuff earlier in the scene you know so that's that's kind of my my feeling about it but um and I think also like I feel like if we're gonna be asking that kind of these kind of questions about the scene it it behooves us to to talk about Richard III you know where we see lots of those horrible coercions in such a like dreadful and like repugnant way that yeah. this one like just feels tonally so much lighter. And I think also like, I mean, you know, and like Zoe said, like the women have no power. Like if we're gonna sit there and harp on that, then we'll, we're, we're lost, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that, so I think it's like, it, it helps us to move forward if we can actually like talk about what about this could be good and what about this can we root for? And I think like he does offer her like an equal stake in their, like their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Regency, <laughs> their, their, their uh, you know, his, his ruling power. Like he says, yeah. England is thine, Ireland is thine, France is thine. Like we're, we're partners in this, like, like joined me. It's, it's very much, it feels like an attempt at being, it, it could be so different, you know? This is a person who doesn't speak his language and yet he's saying, be my partner in this. Yeah. That feels like a big offer for somebody who you can't communicate with to make an offer of equals to them, I think is is really different than lots of sort of more coercive scenes of Shakespeare's that we've seen before. And Shakespeare's quite brilliant at writing coercive, uncomfortable scenes that have to do with gender dynamics and I 100%. don't think this is one of them and yeah. and I feel I feel like also just to sort of make an in-play argument we we saw like he set this tone before like it it kind of makes sense the first French scene makes sense now in the play seeing this scene here in that it had to be there so that we would know that like it's that, that it's okay for us to think that the like mis. It, it, it allows us to be like, oh, the miscommunication is like, it's not a frightening thing. Mm. It is, it's like a fun and safe kind of thing. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's, that, maybe that's no, just that me makes, being. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, um, I very much agree uh, with um, the readings everyone is saying of this scene. And um, I, I was just struck by, uh, the image of the boy, the heir, um, let's see, where is it? Shall not thou and I between St. Dennis and St. George compound a boy half French, half English. The, the, uh, the That kind of astonished me going through it this time that he's willing to talk about um, 
the next king being half French, uh, that he's willing to talk about his heir, uh, where the where the um, the inheritance is through the male line most of the time, being half French, that struck me as kind of extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely, right, because it's not just a giving up of, of um, for France. I mean, he's going to, what we understand, I think, by the end of the play is that the regency after this French king dies will pass to Henry. He's not like abdicating his throne in this moment. It's that if he is now the inheritor of the crown of France, but also now his family will be half French too, right? So there's an interesting, you know, land and family, the ever important forces in these history plays and what the nobles are all about, land and family, property and family. Um, and sometimes those things get uh, confused. Um, but it is, yeah, it is, it is a quite, I, I agree with you that I think it's, it's kind of an astonishing um, moment. Um, I also just love Alice. Like suddenly she went from like being like a very competent English speaker to all of a sudden, like she's like, oh, I, I don't know what to say. I, <laughs> like there's something really, really like charming about Alice in this, in this scene for me. Yeah, what, what were I your wonder... thoughts? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Julia. Yeah. No, I didn't play Alice. I should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, did you have any any thoughts about Alice? Uh, well, if 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 we're going with the charming reading, I see it as Alice does not want to be in the room with the lovers. This is <laughs> I am third wheeling, <laughs> and uh, it, it's not my place right now. Cute. Even though earlier um, he says he he says, oh, she said that. Uh, that uh, men flatter with their words. And she's like, yes, yes, that uh, you're flattering with uh, your words. Like, <laughs> I, I also felt that she's also backing, sometimes it feels like she's backing her up a bit. Like, yes, you, you, you forward person, get away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Oh, I love that. Um, what was your feeling, uh, Zunum, about about Catherine in sort of the the second half of this of this part? Yeah, I mean, I I get a lot of feeling of impatience because he's 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 saying so much stuff, you know, and, and uh, he, I I imagine him as becoming very emotional and and trying really to get something through, and she, uh, I think she, I can't. Uh, I feel that it makes me very anxious and impatient to to just try to get a word in or to like, yeah, yes, I caught one word six lines ago. And uh, <laughs> the conclusion is that uh, this is whatever you are saying, it, it, it all depends on my father. And sure, like I, you know, it'll suit me. I mean, what else can I tell you? You want me to say, you want me to agree with you, but uh I think she, in, in many of the interpretations I've seen, she's also excited, excited about all of this. So mm. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel within the frustration that she cannot understand this person, he, but he's also being, as, as Amy had said, kind of docile. Uh, <laughs> she, she kind of uh, also feels like she can 
kind of um, <laughs> push push pull a little bit. I, I don't feel her as completely giving in to anything. And if I if I think of all my Quebecois friends, um, <laughs> they're these very <laughs> energetic and you know forward uh, women. You know that I, I think that she's also having a share of fun in in how she's encountering, even though she can't mm. understand what is being said. Oh, I like that a lot. That's, <laughs> and then I love that. So they have this moment and depending on the interpretation, usually there's, there's a kiss after and yielding. And then, oh, you have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. Um, and they have this moment and it's like suddenly the language changes and it's really, it, it becomes more like sort of conventional love language. And then, ah, here comes your father, you know, which is such a great transition of like, no one ever, like the awkwardness of the, the father being there is like so wonderful. It really reminds me, um, the RSC did a production of The Tempest years and years ago with Patrick Stewart as uh, Prospero. And it was a production I saw multiple times. And one of my favorite moments was like before Ferdinand and Miranda got married, it was just like Prospero and Ferdinand sitting there really awkwardly together on stage. Like, so you're marrying my daughter. Mm, eh, not much to say. Like, it was just so like adorable and painfully awkward. And I think there's always a moment for comedy with this entrance too. Like, have they already entered when Henry goes, ah, your father and, you know, darts across to the other side of the room. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities for comedy in this moment. Um, and then in comes Burgundy again, and we get this whole strange interaction. Um, so yeah, whenever, whenever you're ready, Burgundy, take it away. God save your majesty. My royal cousin teach you our princess English. I would have her learn, my fair cousin, how perfectly I love her, and that is good English. Is she not apt? Our tongue is rough, cousin, and my condition is not smooth, so that having neither the voice nor the heart of flattery about me, I cannot so conjure up the spirit of love in her that he will appear in his true likeness. Pardon the frankness of my mirth if I answer you for that. If you would conjure in her, you must make a circle. If you conjure up love in her and his true likeness, he must appear naked and blind. Can you blame her then, being a maid, yet rosed over with a virgin crimson of modesty, if she deny the appearance of a naked blind boy in her naked seeing self? It were, my lord, a hard condition for a maid to consign to. Yet they do wink and yield as love is blind and enforces. Then they are excused, my lord, when they see not what they do. Then, good my lord, teach your cousin to consent winking. I will wink on her to consent, my lord, if you will teach her to know my meaning. For maids will summered and warm kept are like flies at Bartholomew tide, blind, though they have their eyes, and they will endure handling, which before would not abide looking on. This moral ties me over to time and a hot summer, and so I shall catch the fly, your cousin, in the latter end, and she must be blind, too. As love is, my lord, before it loves. It is so. And you may, some of you, thank love for my blindness, who cannot see many a fair French city for one fair French maid that stands in my way. Yes, my lord. You see them perspectively, the cities turned into a maid, for they are girdled with maiden walls that no war hath entered. 
Shall Kate be my wife? So please you. I am content. So the maiden cities you talk of may wait on her. So the maid that stood in the way for my wish shall show me the way to my will. We have consented to all terms of reason. Is so, my lords of England? The king hath granted every article, his daughter first, and in sequel all, according to the firm proposed natures. Only he hath not yet subscribed this, where your majesty demands that the king of France, having any occasion to write for matter of grant, shall name your highness in this form and with this edition in French. Notre très cher fils Henri, roi de Angleterre et de France, and thus in Latin, Precarissimus filius noster Henricus rex Anglicae et uh, hares Francae. Nor this I have not, brothers, so denied, but your request shall make me let it pass. I pray you then in love and dear alliance, let that one article rank with the rest, and thereupon give me your daughter. Take her, fair son, and from her blood raise up issue to me that the contending kingdoms of France and England, whose very shores look pale with envy of each other's happiness, may cease their hatred. And this dear conjunction plant neighborhood and Christian-like accord in their sweet bosoms, that never war advance his bleeding sword twixt England and fair France. Amen. Now welcome, Kate, and bear me witness all that here I kiss her as my sovereign queen. God, the best maker of all marriages, combine your hearts in one, your realms in one. As man and wife, being two, are one in love, so be there twixt your kingdom such a spousal that never may ill office or fell jealousy, which troubles oft the bed of blessed marriage, thrust in between the paction of these kingdoms to make divorce of their incorporate league, that English may, as French, French Englishmen, receive each other. God speak this. Amen. 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 Prepare we for our marriage, on which day, my lord of Burgundy, will take your oath and all the peers for surety of our leagues. Then shall I swear to Kate and you to me, and may our oaths well kept and prosperous be. Hooray for rhyming couplets. Uh, any sort of thoughts on this? Um, just thing? a little thing uh, at the end. I, I, uh, it does make sense for the you have witchcraft in your lips line to be to follow a kiss um especially here because he's like oh and now i'm going to kiss you in front of everybody so if she absolutely was like do not do that before and he was like okay cool then that's a huge letdown here and now you know what i mean <laughs> yeah but also the way i i kind of i wish that he would like punch burgundy or something to be honest with all yeah. this gross imagery here and even how like oh, everyone it's so disheartening after this beautiful scene where he's like are you okay with this will you have me blah 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 that kind of language and then everyone's just like well this whole object of a woman here is <clears throat> yeah it is kind of a harsh transition, isn't it? Like when everyone else comes in and they're like, oh, you're teaching her some good old English. It's just like, oh, go away. Like it's yeah. just awful. Let them just be cute and awkward together. Stop yeah. putting all this other crap. But at least, you. I mean, it also, I was thinking though, um, it could be interpreted that he's kind of an escape because I feel like if I recall correctly, even the King of France is kind of being gross and misogynistic too, you know? Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, at least now 
this guy is going to ask her her opinion and share things as opposed to just treating her like a possession. So mm. anyway, that, those are my main thoughts for this. Yeah, I, I had a, I think there's a reason that this part before they do the final, thereupon give me blah, 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 blah. They usually cut these last sort of two pages up until n- near the ending when we're like, oh yeah, we've got this one thing that we need to work on. And they sort of will start, we have consented to all terms of reason is usually I think where they, where they cut to. And that yeah. makes a lot of sense to me because there is something a little bit uncomfortable about that, that sort of page and a half after um, when everyone else comes in. There's just something, I think what it is really, and this just gets back to one of my obsessions as a director is like whenever there's a transition between a private scene to a public scene there can be a lot of like kind of awkwardness in mm. in that moment and that they they're having this moment where they're sort of finally trying to sort of reconcile between the two of them and how are they going to go on this partnership and and what are they going to do and then it's like everyone comes in and starts talking about like all these naked blind boys and you're like oh jesus like go away <laughs> um it's just like <laughs> And then there's all this, like the, the pers- perspectively, right? This is about perspectives, which was the, that very special kind of uh, Renaissance painting where you could only gaze on something. There's a whole, a whole speech about it in Richard II. You can, it's like the, the Holbein uh, painting where you have to stand at the side so that you can see the skull that's at the bottom. I had that speech. Yes, yeah. it's terrible, but yes. <laughs> um, so this is, it's, it's like all of these very strange sort of convoluted, difficult language sort of appears. And then we don't get into verse until after this whole thing happened. Right. Not until, nor this I have not brother so denied, but your request shall make me let it pass. It's like, it's like somehow we needed to, it does seem like Henry is trying to turn like, ah, the maiden cities that will wait upon her as opposed to like, no, we're going to savage them and rape and pillage. You know, like there, there does seem to be an effort to kind of change the subject. But yeah, it just seems to me a bizarre ending to a play. I, um, that line you just referenced uh, about the cities, I, I do hear a little bit of a rebuke there of this of burgundy and this um this uh, joking yeah uh, that you know you're lucky i'm blind with love for this woman <laughs> because i still hold the upper hand here it, there's kind of a threat mm. um at least to my ear in that line but it's it's a, a threat against their their i don't know the oiliness of this guy or whatever it is <laughs> Um, that we don't like about Burgundy, uh, rather than a than so much a military threat at this point. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. There's just something very odd about this this scene. Um, were there any sort of final thoughts on the scene before we do the the epilogue? No. Okay, Izzy, take us away. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. In little room confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Small time, but in that small most greatly lived this star of England. Fortune made his sword, by which the world's best garden he achieved, and of it left his son, imperial lord. Henry the sixth, 
In infant bands crowned king of France and England did this king succeed, whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage hath shown. And for their sake, in your fair minds, let this acceptance take. Hmm. Bravo. We made it. Interesting, just little rhythmic thing at the end here. The last six lines, we get a quatrain, right? A, B, A, B, and then a rhyming couplet, C, C, um, which is a little interesting. Much shorter uh, chorus speech. Yeah. Most productions end with Made His England Bleed um, because most productions, uh, most theater companies have not performed Henry the Sixth parts one, two, and three multiple times. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't make sense. Um, uh, thoughts, Izzy, on this, this final conclusion? Uh, I think this final neg <laughs> uh, <laughs> works in this one because it's not just saying, oh, we can't do things on stage. But it's, not, <laughs> it's more like, directly like it says the author this you know our bending author so it's very much like I'm sorry like as opposed to like him actually writing that versus like someone being like sorry we're actors so yeah. somehow it feels a little more genuine weirdly um and but I think it's it's also a little complicated because it's trying to be like this guy we've praised so much so he dies pretty soon um <laughs> Which is, and everything that this play was about out the window just yeah. <laughs> um, and so Whoops. <laughs> and I don't know it's it's complicated because I don't feel like they needed to add that especially like in a place where Henry V is a well-known story mm. um, so I think it's interesting that they do and maybe like they're calling attention to the unrest. Yeah. Um, and I think they, um, Shakespeare <laughs> is calling attention to um, the unrest. And I think that's not, I, I think that's on purpose, you yes, know? I agree. There's no, there's no reason to put it in there. And also remembering that, you know, especially when we think about how Henry VI is portrayed through Shakespeare, um, not the strongest of kings. Um, you, it's, it's like reminding <laughs> the audience that they're related, <laughs> that this like hero is related to Henry the Sixth, who is, yeah. though he gets three plays is, <laughs> I wouldn't even say he gets them because, you know, I, I don't think that's what those plays are, but um, just, that connection and also reminding you that Henry the sixth was a baby when he was crowned, yeah. which really important, which is so common at this time. I mean, yeah. you look at like, um, was it James in Scotland when he was just King of Scotland was like two or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, yep. And that's, and I like that they point out specifically, um, whose state so many had the managing is what was the downfall because it's just like, well, then there's just a ton of people trying to get power. Yeah. Like covering for this baby <laughs> while he grows up that that just always doesn't bode well. 
and including some characters that we saw in this play like his uncles you know who get like two lines in this play but that's important yeah uh julia i was just thinking about um everything izzy was saying it is also reminding me of what we were talking about with um uh with falstaff and quickly earlier Mm. and it sort of was it was making me think like maybe that's kind of the point is that we're, we're given these moments of like people are just sort of like shuttled to the side and mm. this whole play is all just sort of like a big like Hal slash Henry whatever we want to call him now like being so sort of like full of pomp and like you know trying to like put his own stamp on things and you know fight his own war and have his own identity then I kind of love that at the end they're just sort of like oh yeah and like he did some other stuff too. And then somebody else was King, you know, it, it yeah. kind of like, like adds, it makes him as insignificant as the play made all of the people that he was with before. And it mm. kind of like, it kind of weirdly like evens the playing field at the end. It's the like very, you know, like the, the like you, you also, you remember you are dust. Like you're all, you're all yes. just going to be food for worms, you know? Um, it's kind of, it's, kind of elegant you know for a play that yeah. we have like criticized for being so weird and clumsy and boxy <laughs> it just feels like it's it has such a weird different structure um yeah. that like perhaps we haven't been able to to pick out but these these motifs and these like reminders of these kind of things keep coming back um in such a cool way absolutely and i i, I mean there is something almost the destabilizing about this final epilogue i find that like you know it's the elizabethan and jacobean tradition is you have to restore order at the end of every play that's just what you do because they hated chaos but i i do think there are some plays where you can kind of i i just find as i get older i love destabilizing the ending of shakespeare's plays and not tying them up neatly in a bow um and you know, there's a plenty of plays that are really hard to tie up in a bow, measure for measure being one of them. Um, like, how do you end that play? And what do you do? And what choices do you make? Because the, the script doesn't tell you what to do. You know, you've got to make choices. And this, it, it really seems like, think about the effort it took and all the people who died for Henry and, and all of the things that Henry went through to conquer France. And in less than a generation, it was gone. And there's something very, I always have, I have this like fancy that Shakespeare kind of invented nihilism before nihilism was like a thing, like particularly for like moments like this and the end of King Lear, where it's just like, there is nothing, nothing is left. There is no hope. Nothing is left. It doesn't matter. Something about the ending of this that just feels unbalanced somehow. Um, that we're like, we're like, whoa, like about to fall off the stage of like, and thus ended the hero king and both realms were in chaos within a few years. Thank you for coming everyone. Bye. You know, it's like really like very, um, ugh, it just feels like we've cut ourselves off at the knees somehow um, with this ending. Um, yeah, were there, were there any just final thoughts about either this epilogue or just the whole play? I mean, we've gone on such a such a long journey with this this play. It's a tough one. I really, my conclusion is 
this is a really hard play. This is where Jeffrey Tennant's, it's an extraordinarily difficult play to stage effectively is actually true, right? Like, I think this would be, I've been sort of thinking as we go through, like, how would you freaking stage this? What would you do with so-and-so in that scene? Where would you put, you know, there's just, it doesn't seem like an easy play, but somehow it's a very famous play, but it doesn't have the kind of, it doesn't to me jump off the page in the same way that say like Hamlet does or King Lear or Macbeth or something, Romeo and Juliet. I feel like you gotta dig in and really do some work to do this. Yeah. Anyway, um, Colin, Izzy, one or the other or the third? Yes. Um, just another thing about like how different this play is than others. Just we have a lot of like character driven plays, but yeah. this, I feel like this play is like, it rests on your Henry, you know, it's like yeah. Henry, he's in like almost every scene, except for the silly ones on the side. <laughs> um, and you're just like, this guy's got to be a good talker. He's got to be this, he's got to be, you know, and I feel like you usually have more of a supporting cast that requires that. I'm not saying like, <laughs> it doesn't require good acting or anything like that, but I'm just saying like, you're like, this is important as opposed to like anything. If you think back to like, you know, the Henry part one, uh, Henry the fourth part one, you're thinking like, okay, well, I need a Hal, I need a Henry, uh, I need a Falstaff. I need a hotspur, you know, like those are all like key players that you're like thinking about throughout. And this one, although there's some fun people along the way, it's like Henry, you know? Yeah. And I think that's why, first of all, you don't see it performed as often in like some community spaces. Cause you're like, Oh no, it's, we got to get that one guy as opposed to like, Oh, we can kind of, you know, put it all together and uh I know that that's probably a reason that we didn't do it growing up in like a place that where we did a ton of Shakespeare plays because yeah. you're like okay get the one kid have his day and like that's, <laughs> have fun but uh I just I find that sets this play apart as well from our normal Shakespeare setup mm um, Andrew, did you have any thoughts sort of going on the journey of, of exploring this character over the last couple episodes and sort of, I guess, like what your thoughts are on the character and also just what the character goes through in this, this play? Are there any sort of lingering mm. reflections? Yeah, um, I think the thing that's heaviest in my mind still is less about the character and more about the play and that that uh, and what I think I'm going to take away from this particular experience is that question of, um, or, or that presence of the absence of Falstaff and the absence of Kemp. Mm. To my mind now, and, and from the discussions that we've had, that is what shapes this play. Um, and as as far as we talked about the the uh, bit of Harry uh, in the night scene and, and how um, that and the comedic interlude scenes can all be read from this point of view of uh, trying to make up for Falstaff or, or, or meditating almost on the absence of him. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as Henry himself goes, I, 
I, I'm left with the desire to go back again and, and mm -hmm. re-explore the two earlier plays because I have a really hard time now squaring this guy with that guy. Um, and yeah. that's puzzling to me when you consider that it's the same actor and the same playwright and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, I'm left with a lot of questions uh, uh, and kind of lingering around those two particularly. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very telling to me and it makes a lot of sense that in, you know, maybe the most famous sort of film version of this with Ken Branagh, he adds a scene back as a memory of uh, Hal and Falstaff together in the tavern with Bardolph. Um, Cause it's like, there is something, this play I think is very dependent on those two previous plays. Um, there's a, a dependence on the characters and the relationships that were built in those plays that like, if you don't have them when you're just coming to see this play, it's, it makes it really difficult to understand Henry and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And actually, I think I would also add to that, it's really important to sort of have an understanding of the very complex relationship he had with his father coming into this play and all the things his father said to him, horrible horrible things that no parent should ever say to their child um, that he experienced in both uh, Henry the fourth part one and part two. And then th his father's dying words that the only way to cause peace to <laughs> peace broke out to quote <laughs> Monty Python. It's one of my favorite lines and peace broke out that he needs to find foreign quarrels and that is the way to unite his realm. So I, I really feel like, I, I agree with you, Andrew. I think there's, there's so much of how, there's a weight of, of who he was that has to be brought into this, into this play that is, is, is a bit tricky to sort of um, navigate. And I think this is a very, this is a weird thing to say. I think this is a very spotty play. I think there's some moments that are like, incredible and other moments where I kind of go, huh? You know, I can't just like question mark. Um, and I, I, it's funny. I, I, I didn't think that about this play before we, before we started reading it. Um, but I, I somehow, I think, I think Henry the fourth part one is just like a more solid play in, in many ways. It's just much easier to, to get into. And, and I find, I find this play, um, sort of more baffling than I expected to, which is kind of a fun feeling. <laughs> yeah, are there any, any final thoughts? Well, thank you everyone. Thank you so much.